Chapter Three, Part Two of The Worst Journey in the World, Volume One by Apsley Cherry Garrard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three, Part Two, Southward. Our journey was uneventful for a time, but of course it was not by any means smooth. I was much disturbed last night by the motion. The ship was pitching and twisting, with short, sharp movements on a confused sea, and with every plunge my thoughts flew to our poor ponies. This afternoon they are fairly well, but one knows that they must be getting weaker as time goes on, and one longs to give them a good sound rest with a ship on an even keel. Poor patient beasts! One wonders how far the memory of such fearful discomfort will remain with them, Animals so often remember places and conditions where they have encountered difficulties or hurt. Do they only recollect circumstances which are deeply impressed by some shock of fear or sudden pain, and does the remembrance of prolonged strain pass away? Who can tell? But it would seem strangely merciful if nature should blot out these weeks of slow but inevitable torture. On December the 7th, noon position 61 degrees 22 minutes south, 179 degrees 56 minutes west. One berg was sighted far away to the west, as it gleamed every now and then in the sun. Two more were seen the next day, and at 6.22 a.m. on December 9th, noon position 65 degrees 8 minutes south, 177 degrees 41 minutes west, the pack was sighted ahead by Rennick. All that day we passed bergs and streams of ice. The air became dry and bracing. The sea was calm and the sun shining on the islands of ice was more than beautiful. And then, bump! We had just charged the first big flow, and we were in the pack. The sky has been wonderful, with every form of cloud in every condition of light and shade. The sun has continually appeared through breaks in the cloudy heavens from time to time, brilliantly illuminating some field of pack, some steep-walled berg, or some patch of bluest sea. So sunlight and shadow have chased each other across our scene. To-night there is little or no swell. The ship is on an even keel, steady, save for the occasional shocks on striking ice. It is difficult to express the sense of relief this steadiness gives after our storm-tossed passage. One can only imagine the relief and comfort afforded the ponies, but the dogs are visibly cheered, and the human element is full of gaiety. The voyage seems full of promise, in spite of imminence of delay. We had met the pack farther north than any other ship. What is pack? Speaking very generally, indeed, in this region it is the sea ice which forms over the Ross Sea area during the winter, and is blown northwards by the southerly blizzards. But as we shall see, the ice which forms over this area is of infinite variety. As a rule, great sheets spread over the seas which fringe the Antarctic continent in the autumn, grow thicker and thicker during the winter and spring, and break up when the temperatures of sea and air rise in summer. Such is the ice which forms in normal seasons, round the shores of McMurdo Sound, and up the coast of the western mountains of Victoria Land. In sheltered bays this ice will sometimes remain in for two years or even more, growing all the time until some phenomenal break-up releases it. We found an example of this in the sea ice which formed between Hut Point and the Barrier, but there are great waters which can never freeze for very long. Cape Crozier, for instance, where the emperor penguins nest in winter, is one of the windiest places in the world. In July it was completely frozen over as far as we could see in the darkness, from a height of nine hundred feet. Within a few days a hurricane had blown it all away, and the sea was black. 
I believe, and we had experiences to prove me right, that there is a critical period early in the winter, and that if sea ice has not frozen thick enough to remain fast by that time, it is probable that the sea will remain open for the rest of the year, but this does not mean that no ice will form. So great is the wish of the sea to freeze, and so cold is the air, that the wind has only to lull for one instant, and the surface is covered with a thin film of ice, as though by magic. But the next blizzard tears it out by force, or a spring tide coaxes it out by stealth, whether it be a foot thick or only a fraction of an inch. Such an example we had at our very doors during our last winter, and the untamed winds which blew as a result were atrocious. Thus it is that flows from a few inches to twenty feet thick go voyaging out to join the belt of ice, which is known as the pack. Scott seems to have thought that the whole Ross Sea freezes over. I myself think this doubtful, and I am, I believe, the only person living who has seen the Ross Sea open in midwinter. This was on the winter journey undertaken by Wilson Bowers and myself in pursuit of emperor penguin eggs, but of that later. It is clear that winds and currents are, broadly speaking, the governing factors of the density of pack ice. By experience we know that clear water may be found in the autumn where great tracts of ice barred the way in summer. The tendency of the pack is northwards, where the ice melts into the warmer waters. But the bergs remain when all traces of the pack have disappeared, and, drifting northwards still, form the menace to shipping so well known to sailors rounding the horn. It is not hard to imagine that one monster ice island of twenty miles in length, such as do haunt these seas, drifting into navigated waters and carving into hundreds of great bergs as it goes, will in itself produce what seamen call a bad year for ice. And the last stages of these, when the bergs have degenerated into growlers, are even worse, for then the sharpest eye can hardly distinguish them as they float nearly submerged, though they have lost but little of their powers of evil. There are two main types of Antarctic berg. The first and most common is the tabular form, Bergs of this shape cruise around in thousands and thousands. A less common form is known as the pinnacled berg, and in almost every case this is a tabular berg which has been weathered or has capsized. The number of bergs which carve direct from a mountain glacier into the sea is probably not very great. Whence then do they come? The origin of the tabular bergs was debated until a few years ago. They have been recorded up to forty and even fifty miles in length and they have been called flow-bergs, because it was supposed that they froze first as ordinary sea-ice, and increased by subsequent additions from below. But now we know that these bergs carve off from the Antarctic barriers, the largest of which is known as the Great Ice Barrier, which forms the southern boundary of the Ross Sea. We were to become very familiar with this vast field of ice. We know that its northern face is afloat, we guess that it may all be afloat, at any rate, the open sea now washes against its face at least forty miles south of where it ran in the days of Ross. Though this barrier may be the largest in the world, it is one of many. The most modern review of this mystery, Scott's article on the Great Ice Barrier, must serve until the next first-hand examination by some future explorer. A berg shows only about one-eighth of its total mass above water, and a berg two hundred feet high will therefore reach approximately 1,400 feet below the surface of the sea. Winds and currents have far more influence upon them than they have upon the pack, through which these bergs plough their way with a total disregard for such flimsy obstacles, and cause much chaos as they go. 
for the rest woe betide the ship which is so fixed into the pack that she cannot move if one of these monsters bears down upon her words cannot tell the beauty of the scenes through which we were to pass during the next three weeks i suppose the pack in winter must be a terrible place enough a place of darkness and desolation hardly to be found elsewhere but forms which under different conditions can only betoken horror now conveyed to us impressions of the utmost peace and beauty for the sun had kissed them all we have had a marvellous day the morning watch was cloudy but it gradually cleared until the sky was brilliant blue fading on the horizon into green and pink the floes were pink floating in a deep blue sea and all the shadows were mauve we passed right under a monster berg and all day have been threading lake after lake and lead after lead there is regent street said somebody and for some time we drove through the great streets of perpendicular walls of ice many a time they were so straight that one imagined they had been cut off with a ruler some hundreds of yards in length on another occasion stayed on deck till midnight the sun just dipped below the southern horizon the scene was incomparable the northern sky was gloriously rosy and reflected in the calm sea between the ice which varied from burnished copper to salmon pink bergs and pack to the north had a pale greenish hue with deep purple shadows the sky shaded to saffron and pale green we gazed long at these beautiful effects but this was not always so there was one day with rain there were days of snow and hail and cold wet slush and fog the position to-night is very cheerless all hope that this easterly wind will open the pack seems to have vanished we are surrounded with compacted flows of immense area openings appear between these flows and we slide crab-like from one to another with long delays between it is difficult to keep hope alive there are streaks of water sky over open leads to the north but everywhere to the south we have the uniform white sky the day has been overcast and the wind force three to five from east northeast snow has fallen from time to time there could scarcely be a more dreary prospect for the eye to rest upon with the open water we left behind the albatross and the cape pigeon which had accompanied us slightly for many months in their place we found the antarctic petrel a richly piebald bird that appeared to be almost black and white against the ice floes and the snowy petrel of which i have already spoken no one of us whose privilege it was to be there will forget our first sight of the penguins our first meal of seal meat or that first big berg along which we coasted close in order that london might see it on the film hardly had we reached the thick pack which prevailed after the suburbs had been passed when we saw the little adaily penguins hurrying to meet us great scott they seemed to say what's this and soon we could hear the cry which we shall never forget ark ark they said and full of wonder and curiosity and perhaps a little out of breath they stopped every now and then to express their feelings and to gaze and cry in wonder to their companions now walking along the edge of a flow in search of a narrow spot to jump and so avoid the water and with head down and much hesitation judging the width of the narrow gap to give a little standing jump across as would a child and running on the faster to make up for its delay again coming to a wider lead of water necessitating a plunge our inquisitive visitor would be lost for a moment to reappear like a jack-in-the-box on a nearer flow where wagging his tail he immediately resumed his race towards the ship being now but a hundred yards or so from us he pokes his head constantly forward on this side and on that to try and make out something of the new strange sight crying aloud to his friends in his amazement and exhibiting 
the most amusing indecision between his desire for further investigation and doubt as to the wisdom and propriety of closer contact with so huge a beast. They are extraordinarily like children, these little people of the Antarctic world, either like children or like old men, full of their own importance and late for dinner, in their black tailcoats and white shirt-fronts, and rather portly withal. We used to sing to them, as they to us, and you might often see, a group of explorers on the poop, singing, She has rings on her fingers and bells on her toes, and she shall have music wherever she goes, and so on at the top of their voices, to an admiring group of a daily penguins. Mears used to sing to them what he called, God save, and declared that it would always send them headlong into the water. He sang flat. Perhaps that was why. Two or more penguins will combine to push a third in front of them against a skewer gull, which is one of their enemies, for he eats their eggs or their young if he gets the chance. They will refuse to dive off an ice foot until they have persuaded one of their companions to take the first jump, for fear of the sea leopard, which may be waiting in the water below, ready to seize them and play with them much as a cat will play with a mouse. As Levick describes in his book about the penguins at Cape Adair, at the place where they most often went in, a long terrace of ice about six feet in height ran for some hundreds of yards along the edge of the water, and here, just as on the sea ice, crowds would stand near the brink. When they had succeeded in pushing one of their number over, all would crane their necks over the edge, and when they saw the pioneer safe in the water, the rest followed. It is clear that the Adelie penguins will show a certain spirit of selfishness in tackling his hereditary enemies, but when it comes to the danger of which he is ignorant, his courage betrays want of caution. Mears and Dimitri exercised the dog-teams out upon the larger floes when we were held up for any length of time. One day a team was tethered by the side of the ship, and a penguin sighted them and hurried from afar off. The dogs became frantic with excitement as he neared them. He supposed it was a greeting, and the louder they barked, and the more they strained at their ropes, the faster he bustled to meet them. He was extremely angry with the man who went and saved him from a very sudden end, clinging to his trousers with his beak, and furiously beating his shins with his flippers. It was not an uncommon sight to see a little Adaly penguin standing within a few inches of the nose of a dog which was almost frantic with desire and passion. The pack-ice is the home of the immature penguins, both Emperor and Adaly, but we did not see any large numbers of immature emperors during this voyage. We soon became acquainted with the sea-leopard, which waits under the ice-foot for the little penguins. He is a brute, but sinuous and graceful, as the seal-world goes. He preys especially upon the Adelie penguin, and Levick found no less than eighteen penguins, together with the remains of many others, in the stomach of one sea-leopard. In the water, the leopard seems a trifle faster than the Adelies, as one of them occasionally would catch up with one of the fugitives, who then, realising that speed alone would not avail him, started dodging from side to side and sometimes swam rapidly round and round in a circle of about twelve feet diameter for a full minute or more, doubtless knowing that he was quicker in turning than his great heavy pursuer. But exhaustion would overtake him in the end, and we could see the head and jaws of the great sea-leopard rise to the surface as he grabbed his victim. The sight of a panic-stricken little Adelie tearing round and round in this manner was sadly common late in the season. Fish and small seal have also been found in its stomach with long powerful head and neck and a sinuous body it is equipped with most formidable teeth with which it tears strips out of the still living birds and flippers which are adapted entirely for speed in the water it is a solitary animal with a large range of distribution it has been supposed to bring forth its young in the pack but nothing definite is known on the subject 
One day we saw a big sea leopard swimming along with the ship. He dived under the floes, and reappeared from floe to floe as we went, and for a time we thought he was interested in us, but soon we sighted another lying away on a floe, and our friend in the water began to rear his head up perpendicularly, and seemed to be trying to wind his mate, as we suppose. He was downwind from her, and appeared to find her at a distance of a hundred and fifty to two hundred yards, and the last we saw of him he was heading up the side of the floe where she lay. There are four kinds of seals in the Antarctic. Of one of these, the sea leopard I have already spoken, another is called the Ross seal, for Sir James Ross discovered it in 1840. It seems to be a solitary beast, living in the pack, and it's peculiar for its pug-like expression of countenance. It has always been rare, and no single specimen was seen on this expedition, though the Terra Nova must have passed through more pack than most whalers see in a lifetime. It looks as if the Ross seal is more rare than was supposed. The very common seal of the Antarctic is the Weddell, which seldom lives in the pack but spends its life catching fish close to the shores of the continent and digesting them when caught, lying sluggishly upon the ice-foot. We came to know them later in their hundreds in McMurdo Sound, for the Weddell is a land-loving seal and is only found in large numbers near the coast. Just at this time it was the crab-eating seal, which we saw very fairly often, generally several of them together but never in large numbers. Wilson has pointed out in his article upon seals in the Discovery Report that the Weddell and the Crab-eater seal, which are the two commoner of the Antarctic seals, have agreed to differ both in habit and in diet, and therefore they share the field successfully. He shows that the two penguins which share the same area have differentiated in a somewhat similar manner. The Weddell seal and the Emperor penguin have the following points in common, namely a littoral distribution, a fish diet, and residential non-migratory habit, remaining as far south the whole year round as open water will allow, whereas the other two, the crab-eating seal and the Adelie penguin, have in common a more pelagic habit, a crustacean diet, and a distribution definitely migratory in the case of the penguin, and although not so definitely migratory in the case of the seal, yet checked from coming so far south as Weddell's seal, in winter by a strong tendency to keep in touch with pelagic ice. Wilson considers that the advantage lies, in each case, with the non-migratory and more southern species, i.e. the Weddell seal and the emperor penguin. I doubt whether he would confirm this now. The emperor penguin, weighing six stones and more, seems to me to have a very much harder fight for life than the little Adélie. End of chapter 3, part 2